Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 264, air date April 20th, 2018. So, the stream has started. And, let's see, we are live. I just need to make one little um, tweet so people know that we're on here to ask questions. Okay. And it is also restreaming on Steemit on DLive, which is a um, cryptocurrency platform. So that's also cool. something interesting uh, that we're starting out doing. Okay. So that is on. Starting that. And it just needs a few seconds. Okay, there we go. And start streaming. Okay, we are all set to go. Uh, we are streaming at, to three different sources, YouTube, Periscope, and DLive. Um, so welcome, Dr. Shiva. Um, nice to have you back. You were with us for our first ever online town hall back in um, September, I believe. Back then, you were running as a Republican. Um, now, you are an independent as of November 11th. So what made you change your your stance uh, to run well, as an independent? Uh, well, the reality is, you know, the goal is to um, recognize that both of these parties are basically serve the same, you know, establishment. And, um, you know, we went into this very, very open-minded because when you guys look at my history, I've never voted in my life before. I never really liked either party. The thing that even got me interested in running in, in conventional politics was Trump's win. And, uh, mm -hmm. but the reality is Donald Trump isn't even a Republican or a Democrat. He's something else. You know, he stands on his own two feet, whether people agree with him or not. Um, it's after I went to the inauguration, I decided to run as a Republican, more like a Lincoln Republican. But the reality is in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts GOP um, is completely corrupt and they work in collusion with the Democrats. You see, to get on the ballot, not only do you have to get 10,000 signatures, but you have to get 15% of the delegates attend a state convention which takes place in April as we went around Massachusetts with our bus you know which a bunch of students created we found out we were getting standing ovations at the Republican town committees who are the ones who send delegates to the convention and we came to find out that uh, several years ago a another person ran as a Republican as an outsider uh, an engineer a, a guy who uh, an entrepreneur against the current governor. And the reality was they were shredding ballots. Um, he came into the convention with 30% pledged delegates and he gets only 14.9%. So it became clear these guys are a racket and they don't want outsiders. They have their insiders. So I'm, I, I wasn't going to wake up in April saying, Oh, you know, they screwed me over right? Yeah. when the writing's on the wall. I mean, on the ground, everyone loves us and the mass GOP doesn't even want to meet with us. Yeah. Uh, we were the first candidate to announce. So it's clear they don't, they're racist in many ways. Uh, and they don't want 
separate from the race issue, they don't uh, want outsiders. You see, so it's a dual issue here. Yeah. Well, I'm smart enough to know what, you know, I'm not going to go play to lose. So um, the other important thing is in Massachusetts, 2.3 um, million people are independents, only a half a million Republicans and 1.5 million Democrats. So the reality is not a blue state or a red state. It's really a state of independence who typically go Democrat or Republican following the, you know, the model of lesser of two evils. Yep. Uh, now, um, so I was looking at the donations raised in 2017. Elizabeth Warren raised 14.1 million. Uh, the lead Republican candidate, it seems right now, is Jeff Deal, and he only raised maybe about a million. But you, as an independent right now, has have raised 2.1 million dollars. That's quite a feat for an independent. Actually, their their lead guy is a guy called Kingston, who's raised. Oh, Kingston. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Deal is who one of the ro local radio talk show wants. Mm -hmm. um, the guy who tried to do a hit job on me. Uh, Deal is um, basically out there lying that uh, he's a fake Trumper. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is the lead never Trumper. There's two other never Trumpers. And, and uh, Deal was actually a Cruz supporter who okay. um, uh, then photoshopped a picture of himself shaking hands with President Trump. Um, and then says he's a Massachusetts coacher. So he's a complete fraud. I mean, it's almost like you have to expose the entire <laughs> uh, system in the state of Massachusetts in order to just kind of have a chance. Yeah. So, so the reality is wh why even deal with these guys go independent, you know, because yeah. you're basically in their trap and you have to play by uh, their nonsensical rules. And that's not who I am. You know, I made my money on my own. Why do I want to now? at this stage in life, you know, um, uh, be a slave to viewpoints that I don't agree with and methodologies that I don't agree with. How do you break into um, things like debates? Like the 2012 debate, it was just a Republican candidate and- well, That's a good point. That's why we need to be agitating now because I'm at double digits, you know? Mm -hmm. The Republicans are at 30%, uh, one's at 31, and I'm already at 29%. And and uh, I think my numbers, you know, you can't trust these polls. One of the Republicans, the guy Kingston, hadn't even announced. No one even knows him. They had him at 32%. So, you know, the reality is the pollsters, the, the local media, uh, one media, the Boston Globe, which is a pro-Democrat media, published three pictures of three of the Republican candidates who were running against Warren. Mm -hmm. Two of them hadn't even announced. I was the one who's announced the longest, has gotten the most press, and they leave my photo out. I think I tweeted out on this. And so I hit the, uh, the head of the Boston Globe. Uh, uh, the reporter is a racist, went viral, and he called me at home, concerned that I was exposing him. <laughs> you see, the reality is the, the liberal haven in Massachusetts is the most racist. You know, they, these guys attack, you know, quote unquote, rednecks and people from down south. But the real racists are right here in the five mile radius of Harvard University. And it, it's tough because um, as uh, an Asian, I guess, uh, someone who's, it's not, it's not black and white. You've, it's now, you've, you've got Asians in the mix, Native Americans in the mix, and um, they, they they're always seem to be for the, the racial equality. But then when it actually comes to getting exposure for, for different ethnic groups, they don't do it. 
No, they're the biggest racist, actually. If you look within the five mile radius of Elizabeth Warren's house in Boston, for example, the average net worth of an African-American is, guess what it is, $8. This report just came out, $8. That of a white American is $250,000. The point is, in the midst of all of this humbug, like they're the, the, the liberal elite who are fighting for the poor dark man and the poor minorities, they've created the biggest racial divide. $8 net worth for an African-American. We're not talking about people from Dominican Republic or people from outside. We're talking about local Americans. African-Americans is $8. Mm-hmm. And 250 k for an average white American. And that's brought to you by the, uh, you know, the swamp of Harvard. Elizabeth Warren, um, who's a sitting senator. Uh, Charlie Baker, who's a sitting governor. And Mitt Romney, right? All of these guys are Harvard clan people. Yeah. And by the way, 30% of Harvard is legacy admissions, right? It's who you know. Mm-hmm. So these guys are, frankly, the whole notion that they're, you know, care for minorities, care for the working class whites is complete nonsense. They've created the biggest divide class-wise as well as racially. When you actually look at the numbers. How, how are things, like I know you, you've toured a lot, especially into the more rural parts of Massachusetts. What's, what's it like over there compared to the city? Well, you have to understand Massachusetts as a whole is segregated. You know, it's only the five, 10 mile radius out of MIT and Harvard that generates the wealth. Um, you know, MIT, for example, not Harvard, MIT, the high tech workers and nerds who actually have skills work. Out of MIT came 33,000 businesses, nearly 2 trillion in annual revenue for the entire country. Think about that. Um, work versus Harvard has created a lot of uh, economists, people who've actually crashed economies. But anyway, wealth of Massachusetts comes from that epicenter. But if you go west or mid- middle of Massachusetts, it's a wasteland of people who are basically getting, who are eking by. The far west is organic farmers, you know, trying to do their local farms. The middle part of it is very hardworking, working class people, um, who, many of them who voted for Trump. Um, but east of 495, which is where MIT, Harvard, et cetera are, is essentially the, the elite. Yeah. So it's basically two different economies here. And uh, so you're a big proponent of free speech, that free speech rally uh, pretty much got you on the map. And um, now what was, someone was asking, um, no one's coming in yet, but how it felt to have, was a 40,000 people chanting that you guys were Nazis or the people, the, the 10, 20 people with you were Nazis. Um, well, I, you know, I've been involved in, I'm, I've been a political activist all my life. You know, I, to, as a side note, when I was in India, I was, I was briefly there on a Fulbright. I was recruited by the Indian government to uh, build the largest innovation center. Within about a year, I found out all the corruption. I exposed all of that. I mean, these are mafia type people who could have you killed. Mm-hmm. And I had to leave India up through Nepal and out. And then I've exposed Monsanto. You know, everyone said, oh, don't expose them. They're going to kill you. So you got to understand that I don't, I have a very different approach to all of this because my view is that my parents came to America with nothing and that it's, it's an important service that you give back and be a fighter for millions who don't have any voices. So when I see those 40,000 people out there, most of them were bamboozled by Charlie Baker, the sitting governor and Mayor Walsh. Both of them were up for reelection. Both of them who use minorities and black folk to get their votes. 
So they had stirred up people after Charlottesville to make this a you know Nazi event when the whole thing is completely ludicrous when you have a brown skin Indian guy up there attacking Hillary Clinton for calling black people super predators holding up a sign behind me which said black lives do matter. Yeah. So I was uh, I wasn't uh, afraid of more I was upset that we weren't able to reach those people because had they heard the speech they would have been completely confounded over themselves and potentially we could have converted a set of them on how the the establishment basically manipulated the media. Now, with the media, not just the local media, but the national media, I've seen you on Fox News once. Uh, that was it. Um, has there any bit anyone in mainstream media reaching out to you to get well, you some exposure? Laura, I was on Jesse Waters. I don't know if you, um, uh, you know, Stuart Barney. Um, we get out there because they can't ignore us because we make a lot of noise, you know, and we're telling the truth. Um, you know, I was, there was a bunch of articles after I exposed Harvard with this whole thing that Harvard sells professorships and they take money from third world kids in India to set up their professorships and Harvard's got a $40 billion endowment. So um, these guys do not know what to do with me. Because you're looking at a guy who's got the four degrees from MIT, started companies, um, but yet I know know their racket. Um, so you know we we get we get media play, but I think we're going head on head against the establishment, and we're not counting on them to give us anything. Yeah. Right. We have a close to around two hundred thousand followers across all the different platforms. Um, any of the local, any competitor that I have on the Republican side maybe has five thousand, ten thousand on a good day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's got, I think, uh, 3 million uh, Twitter followers, over half, nearly 56% are fake. Um, if you notice, I published one of the Twitter audits. So I have really real followers. I haven't paid for any of my followers. That's what these other people do. And that makes it a very, very interesting um, pro problem for them because the people who follow me are fanatics in terms of principles and why they support me. And uh, so I was looking at your website. Uh, that's where I get a lot of the info of uh, putting up a lot of news. Um, and I, when I click on the issues page, the first one uh, that's that listed at the top is climate change, clean air, water, and land. And then the second one is clean food and food safety. Uh, now, why are those at the top of your issues list? Well, so, you know, remember, we believe we should declare our independence, right? Um, mm -hmm. By the way, you're going to see a whole another stuff, set of stuff coming out there shortly. But my view is the two parties basically create four or five issues, abortion, transgender, raising or lowering taxes. And then within that very, um, uh, you know, narrow realm, they run their campaigns, right? So, so, and that's how they define whether they're Republican or Democrat. But I think there are many trans-partisanship, trans-ideological issues Mm -hmm. that everyone's concerned about that the mainstream media and these politicians do not want to talk about. So one of it is, you know, the biggest industry in the world is the food industry. $4.7 trillion is a food industry in America itself. Um, the total um, industry for, uh, I mean, the total size of the internet high-tech industry is $400 billion. You see, it's 10 times different. So obviously food is a very important thing. Food is one of those things that we actually have, a, you know, one of the things we can control what we put into our mouth. Um, and ultimately, food is medicine. 
and food governs healthcare, uh, food governs the economy, food governs government policy. So I start there because it's transideological. It affects everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're left or right, liberal or conservative. I, I think very few mothers want their kids poisoned. Most yeah. people do want to live a long life. And when you take that issue and you put the face of it as a company called Monsanto, which has single-handedly destroyed the public food supply, they went from destroying our veterans' lives post-Asian Orange and lives of Vietnamese people, and then they repurposed their, you know, their quote-unquote innovation for delivery of herbicides, which is what glyphosate is, which is Roundup. Mm-hmm. And I just look at my tweet. Glyphosate is known ultra low levels cause fatty liver disease, which is diabetes. You go down the list of all the major metabolic syndrome diseases. So if we really want to address healthcare, well, you got to start with prevention. Yes, when you have a crisis, we want to make sure you get good care, but that comes into lowering the cost of hospitalization. But the major, many, many problems can be solved through food. Yeah, I agree with that. Right. And then the second aspect of it is, yeah, okay, um, who, who wants to live in a polluted world? I don't think anyone does. But I do not believe, as I showed in one of my videos, the Paris Accords have anything to do with lowering pollution. They actually let China go from 11 billion tons to 22 billion tons of carbon pollution. So we have a situation where people get ideologically involved left and right. Um, but when you remove all the bullshit and you start realizing there's a few, there's some issues which actually are really core, which never get discussed by the media. Food, you know, our public food supply, you know, how do we actually lower pollution? That's going to come through innovation, not through regulation. And I know a lot about innovation. And the other part is immigration. You see, the immigration issue, um, both parties have taken sides on it. But when you strip away the core principle, which really should be about meritocracy, that's what this country was founded on. Um, when my parents came here in 1970, they came here because on merit-based visa, right? So when you look at all these issues and you take away the left and the right, you come across some defining principles. That's why those two are up there on our website to start with. It's a way uh, also to expose the hypocrisy of Elizabeth Warren who voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. Yeah. And that's another thing that's difficult. Um, and they make excuses for it because it was a consolidated consolidated appropriations act of 2013 so they just had to fit it in there otherwise the government shuts down so a lot of excuses that democrats make is we didn't want the government shut down so this is a tactic they do this so they can pass stuff in there under this notion of urgency i think barbara mikalski who was the one who was working on that she later said what she did was very wrong to even put that in there democrat So I, yeah, this is a scam that they have. They purposely do this, purposely give a sense of urgency, and then they shove in stuff. Then they can later say, oh, I had to do that for that reason. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, so someone came in. Hope, um, can you test out your mic if you want to ask a question? Um, Hope, uh you're not muted or anything. We just can't hear you. Okay. Uh, well, we'll keep going until Hope is able to uh, figure out her microphone situation. Um, can you now, hear me? Oh, okay. Yep. We can hear you. There's some echo. Oh, okay. Is that better? Yes, that's better. 
Oh, hi, Dr. Shiva. Um, my name's Hope, and I am a, a tribal member of the Cherokee Nation, and I am not very happy with Warren because of her uh, false claims and because of her uh, support of Monsanto. My question for you is, you know, I'm really concerned about election fraud and voter fraud. And are you concerned about those things too affecting you? And uh, if you become senator, is that something that you would be um, concerned about and working on? Yeah, so, you know, there are three pillars to our campaign, Hope. One is real health, the other is real jobs, but the foundation of all that is a third one, which we call clean government. And that has three distinct pillars to it. One of it is term limits. You know, 80% of Americans want, the way you really um, handcuff these career politicians is you go back to sort of very important fundamentals. The founders of this country never ever envisioned people wanting to go into politics as a career because they actually, all these guys had jobs, right? They were very adept at doing other things. Um, these guys do not have jobs. I don't, Elizabeth Warren has a law degree, but I don't know what skills she has. Can she build something? Can she write a software program? Can she, you know, what skills do these people actually have? But the founders never envisioned career politicians. So one of the part of clean government is term limits. My view is two terms in any public office and you should be done. You know, ideally you should just have one term in any office, you know, eight years and that's it. Um, the reason term limits I think are important is it says, okay, I'm gonna go serve and then I'm done. Um, it's not a motivation for you the day you get in to start getting reelected. That's a racket that goes on. Second part of the clean government piece that we put forward is voter IDs. Um, you know, I, you know, in the seventies, you know, or in eighties, the United States government would send, um, observers to third world countries to make sure voter fraud wasn't taking place. And, you know, you know, in India, places like that, you know, everyone has voter IDs. Uh, I found it amazing. The first time I went to vote, which was this past year, I walk in, I have my passport and my license. And I said, you know, do you want my license? They said, no, just tell us where you live. I gave my address and that's all I needed to give them. It's unbelievable that we don't have that. And the third part of the clean government thing is $1, one vote. Let me explain that it needs a little bit of explanation, which means no candidate running, at least for a federal office, should be able to spend more than $1 multiplied by the total number of registered voters. So if there's 4.3 million registered voters in Massachusetts, no one should be able to spend more than $4.3 million. So, you know, you, you handcuff these, um, basically these uh, career politicians with term limits, voter IDs, and, um, you know, limits in a very, you know, concrete way. And that's going to go a long way. Um, and that's the three things that I want to fight for. You know, the Supreme Court came out against term limits, which doesn't make any sense. Or in fact, it's insider trading because no one on the Supreme Court um, has any term limit. Right. So part, part of the whole goal here is, you know, our slogan is declare your independence from this uh, essentially um, the establishment and it needs to go back to the power of you and I for the people by the people in Massachusetts by the way as I mentioned Ebon the thing Massachusetts does well is innovation and that's not because of the career politicians but 
when you look at the flip side of it, Massachusetts has the worst public infrastructure. It has the worst public integrity, which means it got rated really uh, bad on corruption. Um, and then three times the national average for opioid addiction. So that's really the achievements of the career politicians. The reason the state is surviving is because of the hardworking working people and the high tech workers uh, and, and the people come out of MIT. Hope, did you have anything to respond or um, would you like a a Lucas to go ahead and ask his question? Thank you. Thanks. So by the way, I'm, I'm uh, also very upset that Elizabeth Warren um, has not apologized to the Cherokee people. She clearly, um, you know, uh, took the job of another minority. She is a fake Indian um, and she believes it's okay to cut in line. And, but that's really the policies of these people. They have one yardstick for themselves and another yardstick for all of us. Harvard claims they're for meritocracy, yet she didn't get in there on meritocracy. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Lucas. All right, so my question was, you brought up term limits. And I was just wondering, because I've been thinking a lot about term limits lately. And the states that already have term limits aren't really doing any better as far as the representatives, you know, rep actually representing them go. So my question was, instead of pushing for term limits, would it maybe be a better idea to push for non-consecutive terms? It's like, so if someone was in office, they could not worry about their re-election campaign until they were out of office again. Like while they were in office, they would have to spend that entire time legislating or else they'd be removed. Because like right now with like the House... You know, they have two year terms, which means they spend one year legislating and one year running for the next year. And if we were to change, if we were to either change the, the, the length of the term to four years, make maybe increase the House to four years and shorten the Senate to four years, um, that could solve that. But I also think that the non-consecutive limits like, like, you know, would also help. Yeah, but in the, you're talking about the House, you're saying some states do, right? But is it for the house, right? I'm not sure. I, I just know that s certain states have term limits for congressmen. I'm not sure if it's for both the house and the Senate or. So part of this thing is, you know, um, you're going to see us start putting bills up. We've actually started putting drafting about 15 bills, which you're going to see. Part of the term limit issue is not only for these congressional officers, but it should also be for the swamp, meaning the bureaucrats. You see what happens is when a, um, Washington, for example, is really run by families, the Clintons, the Romneys, the Obamas, and the Bushes. And when these people come in through their way when they run a presidential election and they win, they actually put all their functionaries, like it's the old czarist model in Russia, right? The czar, even after the Bolshevik Revolution, had all of his people still sitting there. So the point is they have lots and lots of functionaries in there, career bureaucrats those people also need to have term limits because a president can come and go or congressman, but you have this other functionaries who get in there on all sorts of, you know, uh, lobbying, et cetera. And that's why the term limits is not only for politicians, but it should be for functionaries and these bureaucrats who come in and just stick around. You follow what I'm saying? So the term limits should, should be, um, you know, this is, these are supposed to be, service jobs. It's supposed to be an honor to be in any one of these roles, be it elected or appointed. And once you do that, you should exit from that. 
right. Okay. Uh, Snork, did you have anything to ask? Sure. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about unemployed scientists and engineers. I used to design factories, support them, or go into other factories and fix problems that they had. Uh, there aren't very many factories left in the United States. Yeah. And uh, at one point, uh, I think the last time I looked, there was over 100,000 manufacturing engineers out of work or had taken jobs like as insurance agents or in other fields. Uh, I am 57 years old. I don't know very many people much younger than I that have designed a large factory. Uh, an engineer in the non-academic world uh, used to start off working as uh, an assistant to an engineer. And then uh, whatever drawings they did would be a, under review of that engineer. And he would talk to the supervisor over him who was also an engineer. And there was knowledge passed through the generation. We are losing the uh, practical knowledge that used to be done through that system. Uh, we no longer have engineers training the new ones after they leave school. Uh, uh, what can you do to get us old guys to be able to transfer our knowledge? Can Would you be in favor of a system that allowed uh, uh, the unemployed engineers to assist in high schools teaching math, giving them ideas of how it could be useful? I have given uh, speeches to high schools on, on, you know, technologies that I thought would be important in their future. Uh, and it seemed to help quite a bit, uh, you know, give them an idea of what's going on. Uh, there are other scientists uh, at any given time. You can go on several websites and find just thousands of unemployed scientists and engineers uh, that... Uh, since the administrations have been laying off anybody that's in a field that can identify the world as being older than 6,000 years old is getting laid off. Uh, and uh, uh, what can we do to get all these scientists? Yeah, you and yeah. yeah, I mean, this is one of the biggest things um, I think is a problem here. You know, I, I talk about it extensively. You know, in Massachusetts, for every 17 skilled job openings, and, and the politicians do not bring this up at all, only one person is skilled. So I'll repeat that. So it's not like there's a dearth of jobs. There's quite a number of jobs, but we don't have enough qualified people. Um, and I think this is occurring for two reasons and a couple of reasons. I have a solution for this. First of all, the educational industrial complex of these large institutions in collusion with the large um, uh, student loan, predatory student loan companies has created a captive audience where they've convinced people you need to go get a college degree. And those college degrees are never modulated through market forces. So what I mean by that is um, if you're, if you're come to me and I'm a bank and I want to give you a loan, I'll typically say, Hey, show me your past performance. Give me your projections of your pro forma. What industry are you in? And then I would take that. My loan officers would review it. Right. And we'd say, you know what? That's a horrible loan. We're not going to give you a loan. And for other people say, that's a great loan. Now, when a student goes to these student loan companies, the, the universities automatically can raise the fees every year. And right when they sign up a 16, 17-year-old kid who probably knows very little about amortization, interest, any of this, the parents are so happy he got into some college, automatically they get given a loan. But the, the loan companies, are there's no modulation there. There's no feedback. They give the loan to the student. 
Don't check what field of study that they're going in. Are they going to make any money doing that? You know, if there's, I keep saying that they're studying the anthropology, I'm not anthropology is a bad field, but if there's no prospect for that, these student loan companies are still giving the loan and the student can't go bankrupt, right? However, in my case, as an engineer, uh, there was lots of jobs when I started school. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, let me, so, so what's happened is, so what I'm saying is there's this whole model of the collusion between the educational complex, which just is giving degrees because they have themselves become a money-making, a very, very profitable institution. By the way, who's many of them like Harvard are hedge funds. They take that tuition money, invest it in their endowment, and you know Harvard's got a $40 billion hedge fund. And that's why I say it's a fake university in many ways. It's really a hedge fund. When it comes to engineering jobs, what we've done is we've devastated the uh, American working class and the, the engineering base of this country, right? And, and uh, so, like you said, people are, there's not any, I mean, Maytag, all these big companies that we used to produce really good stuff, do not produce. And my dad's a chemical engineer, you know? He knows, he worked at Colgate and Men. And so, you know, as a kid, I used to go to him seeing, designing huge pilot, huge pilot plant operations. That's a whole form that's going away in this country. And, and the reason it's going away is what I just said. We, are, we, have, we're, we outsource a lot to China, right? We've devastated the local base here. And so with all the engineers that you have available, I think there's some interesting opportunities. Uh, and what we need to do is we need to unleash Votech schools. You know, racism and segregation exist because in most of these poor neighborhoods, people don't have job prospects. But Votech schools, you know, engineering education, and as you say, repurposing all these people in their 50s and 60s, including people like my dad who can still think very clearly. There's a lot of great online models of education right now. Imagine you at your home could essentially be training kids in, you know, I don't know, industrial engineering, right? Or some aspect of science um, through the computer. I think the one-on-one apprenticeship model we need to bring back. Trump has actually proposed that. That's where I learned everything. You know, long before I came to MIT, I learned software engineering. MIT really gave me a rubber stamp in some sense, their branding, but I had a skill, which I still have. If anything happens, I still know how to program a computer. But in America, what's happened is we've um, devastated a lot of those jobs um, by, you know, eliminating the inventory of young people who are doing that. And then they've taken guys like you and um, have not figured out a way to reuse you in Votech schools. You know, in Massachusetts, for example, there is not enough Votech schools. People want to get vocational. We don't have enough schools. So that's what we need to unleash. And my view is you tax the hell out of these large universities like Harvard, you know, tax them at the full rate because they're running as hedge funds. If Harvard were fully taxed, they made $7 billion last year in their capital raise. If we took 20% of that, that's $1.4 billion and use that to build more Votech schools and to employ people like you. I'm saying it's a big problem we have. We're producing people who do not have, first of all, there's a lot of cultural issues here. I mean, I try to hire uh, young people. They don't know what a project plan is. They don't have the discipline of showing up to work on time, right? They don't know how to follow through something with excellence. Um, those things you used to learn from a mentor or an apprenticeship model. You know, as a kid growing up, I used to paint homes. I had a Yugoslavian painter who used to teach me. He said, you know, you put your name on stuff. You have to do it with excellence. 
Um, I was taught by amazing people as a 14, 15 year old kid, you know, in that medical school when I invented the first email system, they were physicists, they were scientists. I was treated as an equal, but I was mentored, you know, by watching them, how they worked. That entire mentoring apprenticeship process, we need to bring back. Otherwise we're essentially creating people who really don't, they're so far away from what excellence means is high level of standards. And I think that's, that's very dangerous for what kinds of goods are going to be coming out in the future. Um, if that is good enough for you, Snark, okay. Um, so Stevie, if you had a question, and then Dominic, if you want to go ask one after. Yeah, um, my question was about uh, media and your voters. Um, just to make sure that, you know, uh, you know, you're kind of on the same page and, and how you keep up to date with um, the what's going on in, in your area. Like, so where do you get your news from or um, how do you make sure that you know what the issues are? Yeah, so I think the, just the question is, where do I get news from and how do I know what the issues are? You know, ultimately, um, you have to go face to face. You know, I'm on the ground a lot. Like I'll go, you know, in the morning or the evening, you know, later today, I'll go down to the subway station, I'll distribute flyers, you talk to people. You literally have to go into neighborhoods and speak to people because the reality is the media comes up with narratives, right? They're predefined narratives. And then based on that, then they fit the data to their curve, if you know what I'm saying. So they already have a narrative and then they fit, fit um, whatever data they want to find to that. So the ultimately the way to know what people are doing is you have to go among people, um, you have to talk to them, and that's what we do a lot of. Um, and I enjoy doing that. You know, ultimately in science, uh, you have to go be close to the actual work taking place. Otherwise, you have all these illusions of what you think is going on. And um, so, you know, I, I learn a lot from talking to people. You know, we, we went to an event, for example, at Malden High School where Elizabeth Warren was speaking, we were outside uh, distributing flyers. There was a, a news company which wanted to do a story on me and the reporter's like, oh, no one's gonna take your flyers. They're going in to see Elizabeth Warren. Um, I have a copy of the flyer, but it basically says Elizabeth Warren is an establishment tool. She's a face of the military industrial complex. She voted for Monsanto. She supports big banks. I mean, we gave out all the flyers. Um, so the issue is when you go on the ground, you find truth from reality in Massachusetts, you know, it's not like Elizabeth Warren, everyone likes her. It's just toxic to be a Republican. So people are holding their nose and voting for Warren. And someone like me is an alternative to that. But you wouldn't get that from the news. You would think that everyone in Massachusetts wants to vote for her. So um, I'm saying ultimately you have to go among people. You know, social media is great. Um, modern media is great. But I think unless you go among people, talk to other human beings, um, get among them, you can get a very, very big uh, difference between truth and reality. Again, the reason if you look at the last election, uh, Trump was constantly meeting with people. You know, Donna Brazil's books, she talks about this guy, Mook, who was running the campaign. He was all about data analytics and, you know, uh, uh, me, you know uh, media buys. Um, Trump was down on the ground. So I think you have to go on the ground. So in many ways, I'm not saying we should be a Luddite, but... You, you know, you have to go among people. You have to go where people are. And I've been all over this state. Um, and I think that's ultimately, you know, what's going on. All right, anything? I, I, I totally agree with that. Okay. Yeah. 
I mean, you go to a, um, you know, you, you know, we go to Harvard Square and we watch who takes our, we have these little business cards that we give out and it's fascinating watching it. Uh, also on the subway, you, you don't need to do data analytics. I don't need to spend tens of millions of dollars. You know, I see minorities take our cards, poor minorities, poor working class people take our cards, older people over the age of 50 or 60, um, young women, um, sort of more bourgeoisified women do not, you know, less likely to take our cards. Um, you can see the sectors of people who take our cards and who don't, and you get a real understanding of who's part of the establishment, who's getting benefits, and who's not. And you can only see that when you're giving who's out not. cards, you look at people's and you faces. you can only see that um, when you're giving out cards, gets excited, who's um, you know, not excited. You go to Harvard Square, very few people take our cards, most of them from out of the country, a lot of snobbery, right? And uh, it's not even worth it there. But you learn when you go among and you see this you know, amazing pattern, which in half an hour as you're distributing. Uh, Dominic, did you have a question for Dr. Shiva? Yeah. <clears throat> Can you hear my mic okay? Yeah, yeah. You're right. uh, the question I had is in regard to foreign policy. Like, what's your take on us giving money to countries like Syria, Saudi Arabia and Israel, who, who is in clear violation of, of UN law, they're, they're uh, occupying Palestinian land, and, and instead of us promoting sanctions for Israel for their violation of international law, we give them $30 billion a year to help support it. Those people have health care in Israel. They have free education in Israel. And we're handing them $30 billion a year to promote apartheid on the Palestinian people. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, so, you know, I, I have a lot of Jewish friends, right? And you have to understand... Um, there's a difference between Judaism and Zionism, right? You don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. Um, one philosophy, which is Zionism, has nothing to do with Judaism. It was created by a guy called Theodore Herzl in the 1800s. Uh, he collaborated with people like Cecil Rhodes, who was one of the biggest racists in the world. Um, and, uh, and if you look in the Warsaw Ghetto, when fights were taking place, the Zionists actually disarmed the Jews who were fighting the Nazis. So we have to understand there's Judaism and then there's uh, Zionism, okay? Two, one is not even related to the religious base. It's basically a construct. Um, it's a, it's a, a cultural nationalism that was created by Theodore Herzl, uh, very much like what Marcus Garvey was trying to do in, in a telling blacks that they should go back to Africa, right? Um, it's similar to what Herzl did. He said, I mean, Jews were in Europe for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. They were essentially... Um, Europeans. And his response to the uh, apparent racism Jew Jews were getting was, let's go back to another country. And if you read the documents, it wasn't physically the location of the Palestinians where the original goal was. I think their number one choice was Uganda, and then Argentina, and then the British basically gave them this land called Palestine, which was predominantly filled with Arabs. So these are historical facts. Um, the, my issue is, you know, I tell a lot of my Jewish friends, I said, look, Jews have contributed a lot. You guys have a lot of scientists, really smart people. Why don't you completely divest from your dependency on the United States, right? If, you know, Jewish people are very proud of their heritage, very proud of their intelligence, very proud of their ability to innovate. Why do you um, so align yourself and, uh, 
and are dependent on U.S. monies and U.S. aid, et cetera, because, you know, your culture is so about being independent. And that creates a very interesting confounding reaction. People say, wow, you know, yeah, we say we're independent. We say we're strong, yet we rely on the United States. And, and that reliance uh, creates a lot of these problems because within Israel, there's multiple factions of people. There's sections of Israel who believe there should be a secular state, right? There's other sections which are theocratic, you know? Um, so this, like, so within Israel, there's a lot of broader discussion about this. But in America, we simply see one segment of that, um, which is essentially the, uh, the what, well, depending on where you grow up, right? One segment of the Zionist segment, which is basically is rapidly uh, wants to kill all the Palestinians, et cetera, you know? which has this, like, as you say, this apartheid notion. But I think, you know, ultimately, Jewish people themselves need to make this distinction between Zionism and, and the very dark forms of that and Judaism as a religion. And what happens, like when I grew up in New Jersey, I went to Livingston High School, which is a public high school my last three years, predominantly Jewish. You know, the parents would send their kids to Israel and they come back complete, completely indoctrinated, wanting to kill every Arab. Uh, and I saw this transformation take place. At MIT, there was a student called, uh, who was the editor of the student newspaper. He went there, Jewish kid, and he came back and he said, you know what, I realize a place is a police state. You know? And he flipped because he thought about it differently. But I'm saying among Jewish people, there's a whole spectrum of opinions on this. But I think fundamentally, Jewish people need to have this discussion about Zionism versus Judaism which has not been, you know, has not fully occurred. And the media never discusses this fully. Um, so until that's done, we're always gonna have contention in the Middle East, and which is really unfortunate. The other unfortunate thing is you talk about Saudi Arabia. I mean, why are we even giving that country anything? You know, it's a racist nation. It's built on oppression. They support the most fundamentalist form of Islam, right? Wahhabi fundamentalism. And yet we align themselves who completely, you know, and, and that entire uh, culture is based on the subjugation of women. So, you know, the Me Too movement should really start asking about Saudi Arabia in some sense, you know, uh, because you have that movement, which is all anti-women in many ways. And yet we pour money into there and we fund that nation. Um, interesting enough, you know, countries like Syria are non-GMO, you know, uh, they wanted to actually create their own currency in, yeah. in the region, which was essentially to have their own independence. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I'm, I'm reasonably aware of this, but I think the issue with Israel and Palestine is really unfortunate. And, but Jewish, quote unquote, Jewish liberals need to recognize and admit that there's a big contradiction here. And my thing is, let the nation of Israel or Jewish people um, recognize that they should be independent because otherwise they themselves are reliant on a Democrat or Republican president that comes and goes. So in many ways, they don't have the independence that they claim that they want to have. They're essentially dependent on U.S. funds. Thank you. Uh, before we go on, I just want to let you know it's 3 p.m., Dr. Shiva. Um, if you need us to stop now, uh, we can. Or if you want to keep going, that's also okay. Yeah, I have another 15 minutes. Okay, yeah. we'll keep going. Uh, did anyone else have any follow-up questions for Dr. Shiva?
Um, I know Lucas did, but yeah, I think he's gone. Um, so one thing that I want to ask you, Dr. Shiva, is in the state of Massachusetts, if you look at the ballot questions in 2016, two of them were about uh, the legalization of marijuana, which was pretty popular uh, that passed, and the other was the um, preventing uh, inhumane ways to to keep animals for consumption and uh there's i mean the <clears throat> i think those are some popular uh things that that can be that can be ran upon so what are your thoughts about that well yeah so let's start with the second one so you know one of the companies i just created cytosol um is creating ways that we can eliminate the need for animal testing you know the animal testing issue or the treatment of animals right was always seen as a left fringe issue but it isn't you know when Trump wanted to remember was looking at uh, rescinding the ban on the trophies, if you remember with the African elephants, um, he got backlash and he backed off that. I mean, and even people like James Woods and people from the left and the right support that. So that's a trans ideological issue because there's no reasons to abuse animals. There's more and more data showing that the, you know, pharmaceutical companies, what you, you know, you can cause cancer in a, in a rat, but it doesn't mean, uh, or and you can try to use a medicine to cure cancer in a rat, but it doesn't mean that same medicine is going to work in a human. So there's clear that the, the, what we do to animals um, is frankly inhumane, and a lot of this animal testing is unnecessary. That's why this company I created, Cytosol, that's the foundation of it. When you look at cannabis, it's, it's a similar issue. You know, I have a uh, my sister actually is one of the leading cannabis doctors uh, in the world. Um, so I learned a lot about this, but I differ with her on one area. So here's my view on cannabis. You know, I do a lot of research on this using our technology. Um, you know, I think we need more scientific research. I think we should make, you know, uh, it needs to be more easier accessible to patients who need it in epileptics, et cetera. But the reason research is also needed is that on the other side, you know, a child's brain is developing all the way until when they're 25, 28 years old. Um, and I don't think the intention of medical marijuana was for you to smoke it all the time. The level of THC and CBDs is far higher, probably 17, 18 times higher than it was when we, when it was, you know, in its natural form. So I'm of the opinion that what we need to do is there's a huge opportunity with cannabis. We need to really support scientific research in this. We need to educate parents and young people about this is not, uh, you know, something that you should take irresponsibly because it does affect your synapses, your brains, your brain development, et cetera. And the other uh, side of it is when you go back to the local farmers, I think we should support local farmers to grow this. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, and, and put measures that we support small farmers versus big conglomerates. Because one could argue as the amount of smoking sales have dropped, companies like Philip Mars, the big liquor companies want to get into this, they will try to create massive conglomerates and centralize this. So that part of the local farmer piece needs to be included into this. And by the way, you know, we're talking about hemp, right? The flower is, you know, what we're talking about that's used for medicinal purposes, but hemp itself should be also be supported as so many uses, clothing, you know, fuel. I mean, you go down the list and it's interesting how companies like DuPont really suppress that because when they started making synthetic fibers. Um, so I think there's huge opportunities for hemp. We should really fund scientific research, make sure 
those things that work are made accessible to patients. But the flip side of this, I think we need to be aware that it is, it is a very, very uh, powerful herb. Um, like all herbs, you know, you can take, you can, you can take too much turmeric or ginger, you know, you can get heating in your body. I mean, I, I've studied this as also as someone who studies traditional medicine. So um, that's my view on it. You know, I think it's, I think it's, these things have a good side, but the biggest thing I'm concerned about is big conglomerates coming in and starting to own huge amounts of factory farms and starting to actually manipulate like Monsanto did, you know, this very powerful and uh, uh, herb and plant, which could have many, many beneficial uses. And we've kind of been seeing some of that occurring in Washington state, uh, Colorado, and we'll see what will happen in Massachusetts. But um, yeah. that is on how much someone can own, you know, or corporations. So we really support local farmers. So, you know, you can spread the wealth. Otherwise, it's going to be a monopolization of it as it as occurs in other industries. Okay. And um, many plants need diversity and biodiversity. Mm -hmm. um, that's, how that's how you create the strength of plants. Um, you know, you, ha you start having consolidation among, let's say, three or four players. Then you start having control of the uh, soil plus the seeds, et cetera. And that becomes very, very dangerous as, as, as it's occurring in other fields. And Monsanto, you know, leads away in this. And now yeah. Bayer, right? And there are a lot of companies, huge corporations that don't pay taxes. How do, how do you feel about or think about that situation? Well, one of the biggest corporations that don't pay taxes is corporations like Harvard University. They're endowments. You see, um, the university endowments are a big racket. You know, um, we need to really break that racket up. We need to bust up these big universities. We need to support, you know, online education, community colleges, Bowtech. And, Matt, you know, Harvard, for example, was originally a community college. And then as these universities grew, their endowments um, overtook, their endowment business overtook their university business. So one is we need to look at these large endowments that have been running as hedge funds without being taxed. Um, you know, look, it's fair taxes, right? It's not, um, it's t you know, you want, uh, so in none of in these tax discussions, I mean, they, they imposed a small tax, which I thought was good. Elizabeth Warren never talks about Harvard as an evil corporation, right? Never. Yet she's funded by them. They're part of Wall Street. So we need to relook at, a whole bunch of entities that get away without being taxed. And we need to f understand why. And they hide under certain covers. And that needs to be, I mean, the Harvard's hedge fund managers made $58 million. I think eight guys made $58 million two years ago. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Elizabeth Warren's campaign in 2012, Harvard, I think, donated them over $300,000 at least. Um, yeah. Someone in our live chat is asking a question. Uh, did see uh, Lil G? Um, she's asking how you spend the um, your the money that you've raised so far in your campaign. Yeah, we're very frugal. I'm I'm, I'm a cheapskate. <laughs> you know, as an entrepreneur, you watch every penny. So if you notice, we had I think 70k in cash on hand. Now we have 100k. So we have a lot of volunteers who are giving a lot of their time. Um, we are going to start spending certain money on visibility, like probably radio ads, uh, TV, uh, some billboard ads in key areas. But, you know, ultimately, 
when I looked at the profit and loss statements of most of these campaigns, most of their money goes to TV advertising and most of it goes to political consultants, none of which we have here. We have close to now, um, you know, um, uh, 4,000, 5,000 people wanted to be our volunteers across the country. In Massachusetts, we have close to probably about 500 volunteers. And those people are out here helping us and we don't have to pay them because they're really behind our campaign philosophically. So the issue is you start really realizing like, where do you need the money? If you look at our investments, we put a lot of it into technology investments, which means really leverage online medium to support offline behavior and integrate them. And so once you do that, you're, you know, and by the way, the technology we're using, I built a lot of it. Other guys are probably going to spend 10 or $20 million just on that. So many of the technology, which I have the rights to, which I've donated to our campaign, was stuff that was used by the largest Fortune 1000 companies in the world for consumer marketing, digital consumer marketing. So we have that whole asset. So we, we are really wanting to preserve our cash. Um, we'd like to win this campaign in under you know, $5 million. You know, maybe we have to raise more than that. But the real issue is unleashing your ground game of people who want to go to other people that's really where you win campaigns. Look at how much, I mean, Hillary raised what, a billion? Trump did it on a third. So it's not the money, it's the message and how you get people um, you know, excited about what you're doing. I agree. Um, what, what can we look what forward to? Oops, someone's got some feedback. Uh, Lucas, did you have one more question? Yes, I just wanted to ask, um, like with the, there's a very large number of young people, like they, they say millennials, but it's even people who are younger than millennials who want to get into agriculture right now because it's desperately needed. We need small, local, regenerative agriculture. It's something that's more meaningful to do with your life, you know, to work with the land, to see physical results, to work with your hands. It's something you can pass down to your children, you know, love of nature. Um, it's just something that we're in dire need of this country right now. And the average age of the farmer in the United States is over 60 years old. The, far, the, the suicide rate for farmers is twice that of veterans in the United States. It's very, very high. The amount of farmers who want to retire and can't is very high. The amount of farmers who are retiring every year uh, dwarfs the amount of, that are entering. Like the amount of entering is, so, is very, very, very small compared to the amount leaving. And so would you have any plans to, on the national level, kind of bring back like a, like a newer version of like the Homestead Act where you would give land that's currently not being used or land that could be used for farming to young people in order to farm and grow sustainable food for the, po the U.S. population? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so, you know, uh, just about a month ago, we went to the uh, New England uh, Organic Farmers Association, NOFA. And it was, um, and these are people who are, you know, in the western part of the state who are fanatics about farming. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, you know, food is a $4.7 trillion industry. We don't have enough farmers. If people want to make money, farming, as you said, not only is a great, uh, you know, economic opportunity, but it also supports, like you said, the mind, body, and the soul. So th things like the Homestead Act, but I think we need to, one of the things that we want to support is local trade, no tax. The big thing with farming right now um, it's factory farming. There's a great video if you want to go listen on YouTube by Kimball Musk, who talks about this, that most of the farms in, in the United States are owned by, I believe, made a, a large portion are owned by like six very old families. And those people are go going to actually pass away. So there's just going to be this huge opportunity 
for deconsolidation of a lot of the farms in this country. And I think it's going to open up an opportunity for young people. I think farming and food is going to be a hundred times bigger than what we thought the internet business was going to be. And I think it's going to be a huge, huge economic opportunity and we need to make incentives for people. But part of that incentive is to keep it local because what companies like Amazon and Whole Foods are doing is they're industrializing organic food even, right? So because of the supply chain and logistics that they've built, they can move a organic, quote unquote, an organic fig from Turkey to Boston versus a fig coming from locally. You follow what I'm saying? Because of the um, uh, advances that have come from logistics and operations research work. But the reality is we want, but the real benefit is when we have local farms delivering to local people. So for example, a restaurant today will m probably buy most of its food from Cisco, right? Or Aramark, one of the big consolidators. They should be incented to buy the local food locally. And if a food is bought locally and distributed locally, it should have no tax on it. So we need to have the framework that we really drive back stuff to local farming, local produce. Um, and that's where you start protect, you know, you talked about regenerative farming. Um, it has to, you have to base it locally. When you work out the problem with food, it's a very interesting optimization problem. You find out that food has to be local because the other mechanisms of industrializing food, big factory farms uh, are destroying, like you said, the, the suicide rates. They destroy the small farmer. They make it advantageous for Monsanto to forcibly make sure people are paying them IP rights for, uh, and licensing rights for their seeds. It's a completely screwed up system. So, you know, we need to significant, we need to basically start banning um, many of these substances like genetically engineered foods, which actually have no safety assessment standards. I've published extensively about this five major papers. We need to really start recognizing that regenerative farming, where you start protecting the top layer of the soil is how you actually, you know, get the right uh, uh, nutrients in the soil and the soil organisms that protect what grows on it. And the amount of herbicides that we use is, you know, is a crime. Um, so I, th I think the farming policy and the environmental policy are linked. And if we do it right, we can have a golden age in terms of e economics, plus also um, healing foods for people. And uh, like you said, you know, supporting people mentally. Um, I think there's a great study. I think they took 90, I'm sorry, a set of people, I forget the number, were manic depressives and they took them to farm and literally in over a period of 90 days to four months, all their symptoms disappeared. You know, I grew up in a farming family. My earliest memories, my grandparents were farmers in India. My great grandfather, 93 years old, I remember him working out in the fields. Um, when he died, you know, he went into the lotus pose and he said, I'm leaving and he left that way. You know, and I think it has to do with the fact when you work uh, when the mode of production that you're doing is connected to what you're actually doing, um, be it an artist who creates something being, and I think we talked about manufacturing or be it a farmer. Well, I, I like what you had to say there for the most part, but I, I guess my question was trying to say, it was like, what would you do to help the young people with their crisis of access to land? Because right now a very, very large majority of young people are burdened with student loan debt, and even those who aren't burdened with student loan debt cannot afford to buy land without taking out lo loans to buy the land. But if they don't have credit, they can't take out a loan. And if they take out a loan, farming 
requires very large amounts of upfront costs and the profits don't like, and the returns on your investment do not come in for several years and until several years after you've begun. So like, how would you try to make it easier for young people who want to get into farming to get access to land and to keep it so that they can stick with it and not lose everything a year in? Yeah, I think you're bringing, I think you, you mentioned the Homestead Act, right? Um, yes, the Homestead Act of 1862. I think we need a sort of a 23rd century version of that. Um, but I think if you look at the whole supply chain, we need to make sure it's easier. Like we talked about Botech schools, um, we need to make sure for, um, for farming itself, we start creating incentives end to end. So a student can go into farming um, it should, my view is like farming and Botech, we should eliminate all tuition on those things. Um, so you can go into those things, you can go into those fields in a very easy way. So you're not coming out of this burden with student loans, also be it Botech school or, or be it um, in, you know, in, in farming. And then we should have a model like the, uh, you know, Homestead Act, but there has to be other variations of that that you allow, you know, the, the loans, if you need to purchase land, which would obviously be dependent on the nature of the land. I mean, they, there has to be some due diligence on it. So people just don't give bogus loans to everyone that was done with student loans. But, you know, th this is something that I've wanted to explore. Um, I've gone, you know, at a high level, I know that we need to drive farming local. I do know we need to do more of the Votex tools to train people and make it essentially low cost or no cost to go do that. I have not had the opportunity to really figure out how you map out the homesteading, but you know, maybe you and I can do a follow-up. I mean, uh, you know, we have a couple of people on our policy team. We're actually trying to get bills, but if you're interested in doing that, we should map it out. I am definitely interested in doing that. I like farming and food and its connection to politics and the environment was like the main reason I got into politics in the first place yeah, and started supporting candidates and researching. So like that's the subject that I am most passionate about and can talk the most about. And like I can definitely put you in touch with people who know a lot more than me and could really help you on the policy side of like fixing a lot of these issues. Yeah. Just to let everyone know, one of the things we're doing is we're going to have an open governance a piece right up on our website. We're actually crafting around 12 to 15 bills from, um, you know, uh, a nutrition act, a, uh, you know, uh, all of these different issues. We're going to be putting them up. And as a wiki, we want to open it up. So I'm not going to wait until being elected to be a senator. Why not have an open governance model? We say, look, here's the outline of the bill, get other people to participate. And we keep revving that just like you would do software. So, you know, if you're interested, Lucas, we could do that in this thing, like take a homesteading type act, put it up when we launch this. We're going to be doing this before the end of the end of March. That will literally say, so our platform is not just a bunch of words. Not only here's our platform, here's our actual bills that we would be proposing. And we start building consensus around those bills long before November. That is just uh, mind-blowingly pretty awesome. What should be going for the people by the people? We have the technology to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So we, for example, crafted a, a bill on GMOs. We've crafted a bill on student predatory loans um, and et cetera. So this would be one to add to that portfolio within the real health. So we have three pillars, right? Government, health, and economy, right? Government for the people by the people, right? Health for the people by the people and economy for the people by the people. Underneath each of those points on this, triangle 
we have other sub pillars on them. So under real health, you know, uh, prevent under prevention, we think um, 25% of NIH funding or more should go towards alternative, you know, looking at alternative health systems, you know, funding that, you know, most of it goes through pharmaceutical medicines right now. Um, under the real health thing, you know, is a nutrition act, right? Things to incentivize. And this could go underneath that, like the homesteading thing to support farming. So we want to build these bills. And if there are other independent candidates running across the state, let's get them as a part of us, right? Supporting this. So we start showing a movement. Look, as an individual running for Senate is, you know, can be a very vainglorious type thing. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in using this as a platform to build the movement. So what comes out is we say, look, here's the program. It's a government for the people, by the people. Here are the bills that we have already crafted versus the current establishment of the military industrial academic complex, right? Which is let's compare what they have and what we've put together. And that becomes part of the movement. But are you sure you don't want to take the Republican Democratic stance of having a bill like saying February 2nd is National Local Farmers Day? <laughs> they have these bills out there. That's that's all it is. Yeah. It's, so they just do that just to their feel good bills, right? Yeah. Politicians, all they're concerned about is getting reelected. They never, you know, these guys go in with making little money. They end up becoming consultants when they come out. Um, look, I have a business. You know, everyone on this phone call probably works for a living, um, tries to figure out how to put food on the table or try to create something. Politicians do none of that. They are there just to get elected and reelected. And we need to completely destroy that whole model. We need to handcuff the hell out of them. So it's really painful for those kind of people to go into politics. Term limits, voter IDs, so they can't, you know, use a whole, um, you know, illegal immigrant model. Um, that's, that's why they support this. It makes no sense why we have any type of illegal immigration. And then we need to really support, uh, you know, tight campaign finance. This is all you can raise. This is all you can spend. So it's a function of who you are, what you've done, right? And do you really have any messages that really hit? If not, what happens is people have to raise, you know, in the last election in Massachusetts, they raised close to a quarter of a billion dollars and they spend them in this and they spend it most of it on TV advertising during the September in a six week period. So they're not really out there educating people. I mean, Warren is not out there at the T station talking to people. She runs these bogus town halls, which are all orchestrated, right? Then they take a ton of money and they spend it on TV, political consults. That's not democracy, you know? So I think we want to do something completely different. I think with, your guys listening and your support, we want to make this a national um, campaign in some sense, because it's how people should be treated mm -hmm. to get the life that they deserve. Part of what we're doing is anyone wants to help, we're actually going to be creating a virtual call center. So anyone, if they want to help us, can literally call into Massachusetts and help us with some technology we've implemented. So we can have anyone in the country helping us in this campaign. Um, so the time has been uh, Extended past 15 minutes to 24. Um, oh, one last question for me before um, I let you have the last few words, a few minutes to talk about anything. Um, I take it you're against Citizens United? Or are you, would you repeal Citizens United? Uh, yeah, so, so you're talking, yeah, so, so let's just talk about, you see, this is a whole thing with PACs, right? Mm -hmm. um, here's the thing, the media always talks about PACs. Are you for a PAC? Are you for Citizens United, et cetera, right? I want to shift the discussion to something a little bit different. Okay. 
and, and I want to broach it with this way. Why isn't the media treated as a pack? Yeah. Why isn't New York Times treated as a pack? So think about this big loophole that exists right now. If the New York Times gives Hillary Clinton an endorsement, right, that reaches tens of millions of people, probably is worth you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, they can do that, right? There's a carve out that was done that essentially big media companies can give endorsements, et cetera, and they're not treated as a pack. So when, I look, when I'm looking at this as an outsider, right, you and I can only donate $2,700 maximum to a candidate, right, in the general election, right? A PAC can take infinite amounts of money and can take ads, et cetera, but they also have some FEC reporting guidelines, right? But a media company can completely affect elections, but they are not treated as a PAC. So this is where I think there's a flaw in this whole process. So if the First Amendment is freedom of speech, and that's why the media companies say, oh, we have freedom of speech, so we should be able to, well, then don't you and I have freedom of speech, right? Mm -hmm. So if they can, so, so the issue of PACs, they, so what, what, what the politicians do is they always create these little worlds for themselves where they get us debating, and then there's this big gaping hole over here that no, it's like a, a subterfuge that no one discusses. So it, this is why the Republicans have their media entities and the Democrats have their media entities, right? Because through those media entities, they can influence masses of people. And I'm saying, fine, if you want to do that, great. But then you know what? I, as an individual, should also have the right to donate infinitely to any candidate if you're going to allow a media company. Because don't I, as a human being, as treated as a person, so as a corporation, shouldn't we both be on the same level playing field or put caps on those media companies that they shouldn't be allowed to give endorsements. They shouldn't be allowed to do this. They shouldn't be frankly allowed to discuss, you know, political candidates or give them any leg up. But we have a big, big gaping hole with media companies here. You see, for example, I could start a media company over here called Shiva media and tell people to own equity in those companies. And they, all they do is promote me. And that would be left to help of the pack thing. You see, and that's what in fact happens. There's a reason that big families, um, you know, the Boston Globe, if you look at who hangs out at their parties, you know, when they hang out at Martha's Vineyard and their nice dinner parties, it's no coincidence. It's probably people like Elizabeth Warren and her friends, et cetera, right? And probably same on the other side. But media companies are left out of ever being treated as a pack. And I think this is a major problem. Yep. And most of the time, um, unlike not you, but other people who are running, they have to spend their money on on media. And that's and like the reason why Donald Trump got help, help got elected was all the help from just basically free promotion by media companies. But because he was well, so media companies, well, he played a very interesting game. He, he pulled a fast one on them because media companies want to make money off advertising. So he recognized that and he was two steps ahead of them so he gave them news he created news content which they followed which they sold ads on and and he just led him around like uh you know with a you know uh you know donkey with a carrot right yep. by the time they figured out what was going on it was too late but it was their own greed that he capitalized on which is they wanted news and they want sensation and he just leveraged that and they did get high ratings because of him and they made a lot of money off of him. But meanwhile, they lost the election also because of him, because he got all the visibility and he owned the media cycle. All right. Thank you for 
asking all of our answering all of our questions and for being here and uh, if there's anything else that you would like to say before we end the stream yeah so you know uh we know how to win this election we figured it out and the principle is that our election is based on going beyond the democrats and republicans inspiring people to recognize that everyday people can run and win you know using their intelligence and their innovation that's the opportunity in massachusetts and defeating, you know, the fake Indian Elizabeth Warren, I think has a big opportunity because the machine of the Democrats and Republicans believes that they can keep outsiders out. And isn't it only fair that a kid who came from India with nothing, went through the public school systems, you know, earned his four degrees without lying on his application, isn't a someone like me supposed to be, and you know, serving this government and then going back? Why is Elizabeth Warren even deserve this, right? So my view is that this election is a historic election because we have the opportunity to change the tide. You know, look, John Kennedy was a, in many view, many ways, he did some really cool stuff, right? He came to the conclusion towards the end of his life that he wanted to get out of Vietnam. He actually was, he probably got pretty clear about the military industrial complex and probably one of the reasons he was shot. Um, you know, I'm not gonna go into all the conspiracy theory around it, but what's ironic is the Democrats put up this young kid, Joe Kennedy, 37-year-old kid, who, you know, probably a nice guy. I don't know him well enough, so I'm not going to critique him. But isn't it sort of awful that he gets to reach 70, 80, 100 million people because he's a Kennedy? And yet, the, the, you know, these guys talk about meritocracy. And I have to work so hard at the age of 53, which I'm willing to do, in spite of all the achievements I've done coming from nothing to reach the audience. And that's not American. And so my winning this election or our winning this election will send a bold signal that let's go back to what this country was supposed to be about meritocracy. You worked hard, you applied yourself. That's why my parents left India. That's why probably everyone on this phone call, your parents came to this country. And the subversion of that by thinking your name has to be a Kennedy. Now, or certain name, and then you get preferential treatment, that's a caste system. That's an elitist model. And Trump's winning this, whether people agree with him or not, he sort of threw a bunch of bombs at it. And I think this election in Massachusetts is an opportunity to completely explode that up in a good way. And that's why I think it's important that we win here, because it's a Democrats and Republicans are so consolidated. And if you wanna to go to the epicenter of it, even though you know I keep bringing up the word Harvard, Harvard literally is a sewer that feeds that swamp. It's the one that educates these elite people who think they're better than you or me. They think they deserve entitlement. And Elizabeth Warren is the face of that. She has never said anything against Harvard. She talks about Wall Street. She talks about, you know, people getting screwed over. But Harvard single-handedly over many hundreds of years has screwed over many countries. You know, behind every major economic collapse is a Harvard economist. Literally, you can trace it down to that. Yet she has not said anything against them. And that's why I put a face on the academic industrial complex, which is Harvard. I put a face on the industrial complex, which is Monsanto. And when you want to look at the military aspect of it, Elizabeth Warren is on the Armed Services Committee, right? Uh, the military actually rejected certain weapons. And she, through her influence, got weapons you know, accepted. So you're talking about someone who's the face of the military industrial academic complex. And in Massachusetts, Republicans and Democrats are like this. 
there is no difference. So I think this election is really, really important. And in a midterm, we know how to win it as an independent. So we need to create a wave now to let people know that they do not need to choose a better or lesser of two evils. There's no need for that. I mean, I think I'm better than the lesser of two evils. Yeah. I think we're better than the lesser of two evils. We deserve better than these two oligarchic uh, you know, parties. And there's a huge opportunity to win. It's not, you know, it's not like a pipe dream. There's actually, there's a set of independents, a uh, significant amount of them who vote, who've always voted because they didn't have an alternative. Well, now they have an alternative. And our website is shivaforsenate.com, S-H-I-V-A, number four, senate.com. Um, you know, help us in any way you can. You can give money or you can volunteer your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Shiva. Be well. Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye-bye.